Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. And I have been having the most unexpected or fascinating or interesting experience the past few weeks. And I, uh, I can't get over it. Like, I'm smiling right now um, because of just how unexpected and great, but unexpected it is. And uh, so I'm going to talk about it in this episode because I was talking to a friend about it this week and he was like, you should do a whole episode on that. Um, so I'm going to do that and I'm going to call it, what is the double down? Because that's the phrase. That's what I, that's what I call it. I call it the double down, this thing that I'm going to talk to you about that I have been noticing. Um, because this week my new book comes out and the book is called, what is the Bible? And here's the thing. When a book comes out way before the book comes out, you start, I start doing interviews and Q and A's and all that kind of thing. So I've been talking about this book for like six weeks straight, hours every day, interview after interview after interview. Uh, by the way, you might find this interesting. Every book has seven questions. Isn't that interesting? Because when a book comes out, I do interviews and quite quickly, about seven questions arise that are the seven questions that get asked in each interview. And I've always joked with Kristen, like, I guess I'm, when this book comes out, I'll find out what the seven questions are about this book. And it's always totally different than the previous book and the next book. And sure enough, like about six weeks, I guess I started doing interviews and I was like, oh, okay. So these are the seven questions. Isn't that fascinating? Um, so I started doing these interviews and um, people, uh, I'm trying to think, think how to say this, the love and uh, energy and let's call them positive vibes about this book are unlike anything I've ever experienced. And we're a couple of years into this. I think this is book number 10. Um, but I mean, let's be honest, this is a book about the Bible. It's a book about the Bible in 2017 and the interest and questions and joy from people who are like, I've never read the Bible, or I would never read a book about the Bible. Why would I ever do that? And then that, I mean, seriously, interviews would start like that and then say, but this was like a, and then they can proceed to gush. Like literally reporters from publications who in the past, you just do an interview and you feel like you're, um, like a frog being dissected in a lab. Do you know what I mean? Um, I haven't even really enjoyed interviews that much in the past because of the sort of poking and prodding. It's like you're on the witness stand kind of. Does that make sense? But this one is just like a totally different game. Oh, by the way, uh, before I forget, Bible Belt Tour. Come on. Um, I'm doing bookstore tours starting this week. Bookstores. So um, LA, Tuesday night, the 16th, Chicago, the 18th, we added a second one in Chicago because the first one sold out. And then Brooklyn is Thursday night, the 18th of May. And then the following week, we'll go to Seattle and Portland. And then I'll be in Denver, Minneapolis, and Ohio. So bookstore tour. But then after that, for years, I'd been thinking, I should do a Bible Belt tour. I should go to Alabama. I've never been to Alabama and done any sort of gig. So uh, we just announced it last week. Tickets just went on sale for the Bible Belt Tour in July, which is Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, 
<laughs> I know. It's going to be so much fun. Um, so all that's happening. All that info is at robbell.com. And there's still some pre-order content you can get at robbell.com. Otherwise, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. So there. That's what you need to know about the book. And there's an audio book. And uh, I'll be doing some Q&As on Facebook Live in the next few weeks for those of you who start reading the book. And I'm like, wait, we got to talk about this. Great, we'll talk about it. But let's go back to this very interesting thing. People are more interested in the Bible than ever. And that's fascinating. And I, so I want to explore that for a moment culturally, but then I want to explore it personally because this has all sorts of things to do with you. Um, and actually, one of the reasons why I put the book out was my friends who had never read the Bible or, or, or aren't any part of any sort of religious stuff were, were some of the ones who were most, were the ones who were the most like, dude, that stuff on the Bible that you do, you should write that down. That stuff's good. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? So it actually came because, and my work now is, is doing something like this, like podcast from the back house and it's clubs and, and theaters and uh, spaces that, that aren't in any way overtly, you know, religious or spiritual or whatever. And yet more and more, I notice how people who would never want anything to do with the Bible who are like, tell me more. Um, and so the book came out of that awareness um, that there's something interesting happening in our world and the timing, we're, we're like more hungry than ever. Um, and in a moment, I want to talk about base notes because I think there's a base note dimension to it. So first off, what I've noticed is how many people have uh, never read it or people who have read it and think they've read it but actually have no idea what's going on. So, for example, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, and probably you've seen on the news, like, people arguing about whether the Ten Commandments should be hung in a courtroom or that sort of stuff that's just like, what? Um, what are you doing? But an example would be the Ten Commandments are given to these former slaves. They've been slaves. They're the Hebrew slaves. This is the major story that sort of inaugurates the Bible. These are... Hebrew slaves who have been slaves in Egypt and they're liberated. You've heard me talk about this a thousand times. Um, and now they have to learn a new way of being human. Now, if any of you ever been in an unhealthy relationship, <laughs> yeah, raise your glasses. Not so good. Anybody here been in a toxic or a dysfunctional work uh, or family system? I know. Raise your glasses. Not so good. Yeah. So how many of you you were in like a toxic relationship, the relationship, you got out of it, but then you got into a healthy relationship. And all of a sudden you were like, wait, this is kind of weird. Like when I tell this person the truth, they believe me. <laughs> like we actually just communicate freely and there isn't all this anxiety and tension. No one's playing games. Uh, yeah, you have to learn a new way to be in a relationship. Or maybe you were in a work environment that was just a mess, just rivalries and jealousy and people sort of lording their positions over other people. But then you left that and went and got a job in an actual functioning, healthy work environment where people said they would email you the next day, and they did. And where people said, um, I'll do this. And then in three days, we'll meet and we'll evaluate it. And then in three days, you actually met and evaluated it. And you're like, wait, is this what it's, what? You know that feeling when it's like you're learning, 
how to be human. You're learning how to work. You're learning how to be in a relationship again because of the thing before that was so toxic and destructive and dysfunctional. It's like your neural pathways got formed. And now you're in this new setting where there's like honesty and accountability and trust. And it's like you have to learn how to do it all over again. So when you read the Ten Commandments, for example, these are people who are learning a new way to be human. So, so for example, the gods were demanding at that time in that place. The dominant human consciousness about the divine being is that the that gods were of a particular bent. For example, Pharaoh owned slaves and Pharaoh was considered like a god on earth. So in the dominant Egyptian consciousness, the gods are fine with slavery, with some people oppressing and owning other people. Do you see what I mean? The gods are nasty. So the Ten Commandments begin with, you shall have no other gods. Now you can read that as an oppressive sort of uh, archaic, or you can read it as, oh, you need to begin with grace. Because what happens in the Torah over and over again. You were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. You were in you were oppressed and in bondage and I rescued you and liberated. Do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So what is the, you shall have no other gods? It's grace, grace. In your powerlessness, you were rescued. When your life had been unmanageable, a higher power reached in and liberated you. Do not forget grace, grace, grace. So see, if you read the Ten Commandments in their setting, or for example, Sabbath, which you've heard me talk about before, and taking one day a week to remind yourself that your worth and value do not come from how many bricks you produce for your slave master. Take one day a week to remember that your worth and value comes because you are a, a child of the divine. Yeah, so see, if you start to reread re the Ten Commandments as how do you essentially have a new kind of humanity um, and these people are having to learn new ways of thinking about things and living. Yeah, of course, now all of a sudden the Ten Commandments become a very different thing. Or for, for example, the soil from the literally the opening pages of the Bible. It is assumed that any coherent vision of life is based on a proper relationship with the soil. If you live out of whack with the environment, if you abuse it, if you exploit it, if you don't let the land rest every few years, then your whole lives, your culture, your economics, your religion, your politics, the whole thing will begin to unravel. In fact, these uh, former Hebrew slaves are, are commanded to let the land lie fallow, and they don't. They just farm it year after year after year after year, and they don't take a year to let the land replenish itself. And the prophets, and then their whole culture sort of disintegrates and falls apart, and they're hauled away, they're conquered and hauled away to Babylon um, into exile. And one of the prophets says, you, you know why your temple was destroyed and Everything about your culture was obliterated. Oh yeah, it's because you didn't take proper care of the earth. So like that, this is an assumption. So when people talk about caring for the environment and progressive issues about a climate change, yeah, 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 of course, of course. 
that this is assumed thousands of years ago, people were talking about these things. Or even you think about the name of God in the Bible. The Bible is as much about the absence of God as the presence of God. The Bible is as much about that existential deep question, that terror, that question, are we alone in the universe? Is the universe against us? Is the universe not a safe place? Are we really here all alone? Think about the Psalms. Why do you hide your face from me? Those are all rants. Those are all uh, prayers, poems, and songs essentially centered around the absence of the divine doubt is a major theme of the Bible. People wondering if there is any certainty, is there anything solid that you could stand on? You think about Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the day that God becomes an atheist. (laughs) So a lot of people don't know this. A lot of people are like, oh, the Bible is you need to believe. And if you don't believe, then I think the, the Bible is about real people in real places at real times, wrestling with all of the big issues that we're wrestling with to this day. Or like with the name of God, there are lots and lots of different names for God in the Bible because God is a word that human beings have used to try to describe ultimate reality, to try to name that of which you can't name anything bigger, more infinite. The word God is simply an attempt to put language on the infinite, to, to talk about the thing behind the thing behind the thing. So even the ways that people nowadays cling to particular names and definitions of the Bible. In the Bible, people are wrestling with what's be, what kind of universe. And maybe if you were to modernize it, you would say the word God is the word that people have used to try and answer the question, what kind of universe are we living in? What's behind it all? Does this all flow from a source? And is it headed somewhere or is it just random? And are you just a collection? Do you see the questions that we're asking today? When people use the word God, that's what they were getting at. This question, this struggle. Or I'm fascinated with how many people haven't heard that like the gospel of Luke, one of the central ideas is inclusion. Like the gospels are about a group of people, a tribe who have drawn boundaries about who's in and who's out. And then Jesus just systematically, he upholds the dignity of women, Samaritans, Sidonians, lepers. Like he just goes down the list and everybody who's been kicked to the edges gets included. Inclusion. Every time you hear the someone use the word inclusive, inclusion is one of the central themes of the Bible. Or you take violence. There's lots of violent passages. So you can read the book of Judges and you can read it and think, this is the most violent. Why You can take any story in the book of Judges and be like, why in the world would I ever read a book that has all this violence in it? Um, even though you love Game of Thrones. Why would I read a book with all this violence in it? But then if you read the book of Judges, you realize, this is in the book, by the way, you realize that there's actually a pattern So you can read a violent story in the book of Judges and then be like, this is a violent book. This is stupid and primitive and barbaric. Why would I ever read this? But then you read the book of Judges and realize there's a cycle of violence. It's peaceful. Then the people get conquered. Then it's oppressive. Then there's tons of senseless violence. And then it gets peaceful for a little bit. Then there's a bunch of senseless violence. If you read the book, you realize there's a pattern that the editor, whoever 
wrote the book and then edited it together is making a point. Their point, if you read it straight through, is, oh, because you'd be like, this, this violence is pointless. It's not making anything better. Exactly. Exactly. So oftentimes what happens is there's a group of people saying, you need to believe exactly what was said here. It happened exactly like it was happened, like it says it happened. And if you don't believe that, then you're not a true whatever believer. You're not whatever. But then there's another group of people who says there's no way it actually happened like it says it happens, like it happened. Like that's primitive, barbaric, nonsense, fairy tales. Both groups are literalist fundamentalists. They're both reading the book like first graders. Are you with me on this? You see, both, the one says it had to have happened exactly like it says it happened. The other one says there's no way it happened. How can you believe that ancient stuff? Both of them have like a first grade understanding of this profound, nuanced, subtle book. They're both reading it like literalist fundamentalists, and they both miss the power and transcendence and mystery and confrontation and provocation of the story which isn't about whether or not it happened, but about why did this person tell this story and why has it resonated with people and what does it say about what it means to be human? Come on, are you with me? So good. So what I just discovered is the people who think they've read it haven't and the people who haven't haven't and don't... Uh, haven't seen just what this ancient library is. And when you get into it, you start realizing that these books are about exactly what we're still talking about. Technology is a major theme in the Bible. What do you do when your neighbor gets a new technology that means they can make a new weapon that you don't have? How terrifying would it be for your neighbor to have a new weapon that you don't have. Absolutely terrified. It'd be like, imagine if there was like a, a weapon that like only six or seven or eight countries in the world had. Uh, like, like, I don't know, I don't know, let me just pull one randomly. How about like a nuclear bomb? Imagine if there was only a couple countries in the world that had a nuclear bomb and the other ones didn't. And the ones that did have the bombs were very, very, very strict about who could and couldn't have the bombs. And what if the one country that was leading the charge to determine how the other countries can't have bombs actually had dropped a nuclear bomb twice on actual cities full of actual people? I know. I know. That would be crazy. So you can see why this ancient library, man, it, it raises all of these deep, fundamental issues of what it means to be human society and civilization. And, and I, uh, well, I probably should tell you what happened to me is I'd sort of heard the Bible stories, the sort of nice Bible stories, you know, about I should love your neighbor and, and someday people will go to heaven, that sort of thing. And then uh, I got into the sermon, as you know, I was like, I'm going to re, I'm going to reclaim the sermon as the art form that it is, as the ancient art form that it is. So I was just singularly focused on this art form of the sermon. And in the tradition I came from, you give a sermon from the Bible. So I went to seminary um, and I was really young when I went to seminary. So I studied Greek and Hebrew and I heard interesting things about the Bible, but for some reason it didn't all, it was fine, 
but it was when I had just started preaching that, and I tell the story in the book about a man named, a man named Richard came up to me after a sermon and he said, you're missing it. And I was like, I'm missing what? And he said, that sermon that you just gave, you missed this. And then he proceeded to list all the things I'd missed that were going on in the text, in the story. He's like, and then he's like, you know, Jesus was Jewish. And <laughs> I mean, I knew that, but I was like, what? <laughs> Jesus was Jewish? Um, and Richard said, I'm Jewish. And you have to understand that as a Jewish rabbi, there was this and this and this and this, and Jewish rabbis talk like this and they did this. And he just rattled off all the stuff that was happening there that I had completely missed and had never heard. And I was like, how come I haven't heard this? So Richard became like a, like a very effective drug dealer. He'd bring, he'd bring by these photocopied articles by people I'd never heard of, Shlomo Gorin. He'd bring by all these <laughs> obscure articles by people I'd never heard of telling me uh, w with these articles about like taxation rates and mikvahs and midrash and the Talmud. And it was like, once you go down that rabbit hole, once you start reading the Bible in context, once you start realizing real people, real places, real times, and the more you know about those real times and those real places and those real people, it's like the whole thing went from black and white to color. It's like it went from 2D to 3D. Um, when I discovered that in the ancient tradition, it was believed that, the, that it's like the text had faces, like a gem, and that when you turn the gem, the light refracts in different ways. So as opposed to there's one thing it means and you just need to understand it and then do it, it was, oh, you dance with it, you turn it, you twist it, you interact with it, you read it, but you let it read you. I'm telling you, and especially in the setting that I had been trained in and come out of, came out of, it, it was like, it was like, I'm still lit up from it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'll tell you at a deeper level, and for those of you who have been um, with me on this podcast for a while, uh, if you're like, what is the thing that he's doing? What is the thing? Sometimes people will say like, why is it? Wh what is the thing behind the thing of what you're doing there? Um, what happened for me? when I began to read the Bible in a new way is for me, previous to that, honestly, spirituality sort of existed six inches off the ground. It was sort of a different realm. And then you die and maybe you go somewhere else. So it's sort of here in this world, but let's be honest, not really. And even the word spiritual for many people means not material. It means ethereal. It means clouds, um, Enya in the background. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's an Irish singer. That'll make sense later when you Spotify it. Um, and when I sort of began to do this deep dive into the world of the Bible and realize that spirituality is about soil and sweat and wine and sex and surfing and economics, and politics, that the gospels were deeply political documents, that the implications of all of this for how we arrange ourselves, that the minor pro the prophets over and over again talked about what happens when you have a widening gap between the rich and the poor, when, when elites with all of the money control the system and everyday people begin to have trouble making ends meet. I mean, this is like a major theme of the prophets. Um, 
when I began to realize that, that this was talking about all the things we're talking about, power, work, uh, who is my family, consciousness, what happens when you've seen something and tasted something and the people in your, in your tribe haven't? What happens when you have to keep going? What does the hero's journey look like when you have to pursue it where it leads and the people around you, maybe the people who are closest to you don't understand? What happens when you have to leave the village? When I began to realize that one of the dominant themes of the New Testament is who is my family? Um, because when you grow, change, evolve, adapt, see new things, you have to go where it takes you or something within you dies. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like we say so good, but with a little bit of a limp. It's like the story of Jacob. You've wrestled with the divine and so you have a limp. Um, and you walk with the limp, but you've also wrestled with the divine. And uh, yeah, this book, this library of books that I had, I had committed to, it was like my job, but then it, all of a sudden it became like passion and it became meaningful at some other level. And then my sermons began to change and then people would come up afterwards, sometimes angry. This has happened for years, angry. And they would say, how come... I've heard that story my whole life and no one ever told me da 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 uh, When the prodigal son, when the son says to the father, father, give me my share of the inheritance. Well, you know what that means. Like that's like, and then I would explain what that means and why that opening of that story is so unbelievably shocking. People would have, their jaws would have dropped that someone told a story in which a young son said to the father, father, give me my share of the inheritance. That like, you can't even convey in English language how absolutely devastating and shocking and uncensored that story was. Probably should do an episode on that sometime, huh? Yeah, so that's what happened to me. Um, and so this book was me trying to capture all that uh, in one place, in under a thousand pages. <laughs> and we're gonna get to what that has to do with the double down here in a minute. Um, but I'll tell you one of the things I've noticed in this past, whatever, six weeks of interviews and questions. And I call it the base note. And I've seen this over and over again, but what's so interesting about this book is seeing it like writ large for me. We are craving base notes right now. And by base note, I mean there's base and treble. There's treble, the higher, squeakier, <laughs> higher frequency notes, and then there's the base note. And something about modern culture and something about the way the internet has worked on us um, how many of you, if somebody sends you a YouTube video, hey, dude, you should watch this clip, you immediately look at the time signature, and if it's over, like, what's the number where you're like, no, why am I watching this? If it says seven, unless there's some unusual circumstances, if it says seven, you're like, maybe later. <laughs> nah. Um, if it's under two, if you're like me, you're like, under two, under one minute, yeah, I'll watch it. But, but there's something about the speed. And then secondly, the way in which blips and squeaks are coming at us faster than ever. The way in which the news has become so sensationalized. Um, the president gets two scoops of ice cream and everybody else gets one. Those sort of headlines that demean uh, actual news and journalism and reporting. Um, this TMZ-ing of our world uh, it, it's sped everything up to everything's happening right now here in this moment. Have you seen that Snapchat? Um, that it can easily disconnect you from things that are older than five minutes. 
And so life just becomes a reaction uh, to the things coming at you right now in this second. And it can become all trouble, no base. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was surfing at a spot that I love, obligatory surfing story, come on now. I was surfing at this place, this uh, break that I absolutely love. And there was only, I was all alone having this wave to myself. And it was, oh, it was like one of those moments that's just like, yes, here we are. And this woman paddles out and she's probably, I don't know, mid sixties. She paddles out. We're sitting there, we're chatting. She says to me, they call me Queen D. <laughs> That's what she says to me. They call me Queen D. And then she pauses and she says, I first surfed this break in 1962. <laughs> she didn't, it was almost like she would have added like, before you were born, boy. But it was actually before I was born. Eight years before I was born, she was surfing this spot. So I had this like moment of, that's some history. That is some history. There's like a, there's like a wow, that does something to you. But then uh, not a couple of years ago, my family and I were in Philadelphia. We went to the Liberty Bell to see the Liberty Bell. And there was a long line. Um, so we waited in a long line in order to see Liber Liberty Bell. And it was cracked. It doesn't even work. Who knew? They don't tell you that when you just get in line. And uh, that's older. That's like a couple hundred years older. And you have this feeling when you're in the room with the Liberty Bell, like this is the Liberty Bell. Like I'm in the room with this iconic piece of metal that uh, people have been talking about for a long time. But then uh, last year I was in a cathedral in England that was like, I don't know, 800 years old. And there's a story of how this town built this cathedral and all of this intricate filigree work on the outside that you sort of, even before you walk in, you're already in awe of how much attention to detail. And then you go in this cathedral and you see the floor and the worn out stones. And you think about how many, what, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been through this cathedral, have prayed, have lit a candle, have sung in this. Uh, and that's going back and then you, that's going back, what, you know, 800, 900,000 years. And then you think about a text. That's not 1962. That's not 1779, whatever. That's not 1400. An ancient text. Now we're talking 2,000, 3,000 years. We're talking an oral tradition handed down a lot of the Bible was oral tradition early, early on that eventually got sort of codified and written down and edited and compiled and tweaked. Uh, so when you're working through an ancient text, an ancient sacred text that people have gathered around, you're gathering around something that people have been gathering around for thousands of years. So you're entering into an experience, into a discussion. You're swimming, you're floating down a stream that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people have been floating down for a really, really, really long time. And that, my friends, is a very different energy than what somebody posted on Instagram 13 minutes ago. You see what I'm saying? It's like we're craving base notes. And when you find yourself wondering, where is the stable ground? When you find yourself wondering in the face of tragedy, what can I cling to? 
when you find yourself looking around at political structures thinking, is this, can this thing even survive? Is it all just going to blow up? Does anybody running the show here know what they're doing? Yeah, people have been asking that question for thousands of years. And people have been sharing human wisdom about how to stay grounded and centered when the power structures around you seem to have lost their mind, there is thousands of years of wisdom about this. When you find in your heart that you are both happy and sad, and when in laughter there is an ache, when on one hand, in one area of your life, you're on top of the world, and in another area, you can, you just wipe away the tears and more tears keep coming, and all of it's happening within you at the same time. Yes, yeah, yeah, people, people have been naming this and discussing this and saying very helpful, interesting things about it. Yeah, and when you have this sense that there's something at work here, there's something at work at you, there's something at work in you that connects you to others that is moving through human history, that it begins with a big bang, and there's what? Subatomic particles that form atoms, that form what? Molecules, that form cells, a consciousness arises. What is this? Why... Are there things that we know are primitive and barbaric and we're so glad we don't do them and we're so glad that we've evolved and yet at the same time there are things right now that we think we need, hopefully we keep evolving here. You know what I'm saying? The affirmation that that's primitive and barbaric back there also has built into it an affirmation that we still have a number of ways in which we are primitive and barbaric and need to keep going. Yeah, yeah, and this is what the Bible is about. It's like we're starving for depth. We're starving for bass notes. And what I noticed over the past few years in settings where people would never talk about the Bible is I would say, actually, there's an ancient story about that. And I would tell the story. You know, there's, there's, a, there's, an, there's an old poet who put it this way. And, uh, oh, doing that wisdom series here on the Robcast and having so many of you talk about its... Uh, its relevance for the modern world is just funny because this is an ancient wisdom tradition, yet it has more power and depth than ever. It's like we're desperate for the bass notes. So what happened to me is I've been reading this old library of books and studying it and giving sermons from it. And my friends were like, you should write some of this stuff down. So I write it down and I own it. Uh, and that's where uh, this subtitle, which hopefully will win longest subtitle of the year, comes out. How an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. When I was trying to figure out the subtitle and I was working on it, I was like, well, what is the story? What is the genuine, true story of what happened to you? I mean, I was like literally like interviewing myself. How would you describe this book? And I started thinking about soil and non-duality and resistance to empire and the paradox of the finite and the infinite, the known and the unknown, and the centrality of doubt in the absence of the divine as part of life. And I was like, well, this, I mean, this book has, has changed the way I think and feel about everything. It actually has done that. So the title, you know what the title is? The title is me doubling down. See, the double down is when you own it. The double down is when you don't back away, but you step into. The double down is when you don't 
walk away, you walk towards it. The double down is when you don't put distance between you and the thing. The double down is when you turn and you explore it and you dive into it all the more. The double down is when you say, this is my story, this is my song. Like this is what actually happened. And you, I mean, those of you in recovery, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The double down is when you don't deny that those things happen, but you actually get involved in the program and you tell those stories to others to show them, to help them see that whatever they're going through, they're not the first person and you made it through and they can make it through too. The double down is when you claim every last bit of your experience and you don't hem and haw and you take what perhaps at some point you might have been embarrassed by and you wear it proudly in the most sort of healthy, humble sense. You say, no, oh, no, no, this happened. This is how it went down. This is where it took me. I left the village. This is who didn't get it. I had this experience. I failed here. I made this mistake. The double down is when you claim every last square inch of your story. And you, it's like you turn it over, you surrender it with the assumption that the whole thing is holy. It's sacred because it's what happened to you. It's, it's when you tell us what worked and what didn't, what helped you. It's when you lay claim to what you have seen and witnessed. It's when you share the weird, strange, unexpected twists and turns that brought you to this moment. If you're staying where you are, then you own that place and you live in the fullness of it. If you're leaving, then you leave and you see where it takes you. The double down is when you do not stand at a distance from your own life, but you stand in the fullness of it. The double down is when you don't deny that the things that actually happened happened, but you report on them and you own them in the fullness of all their edges and twists and turns because that's what happened. And what happened to me is I somehow met some people and went down a fascinating path and this book, this ancient library just kept working on me. And so I started telling people what I saw and then I, it worked on me some more. And now, strangely enough, it's working on me more than ever. And in 2017, I'm doing interviews about it and having more fun than ever talking about it and seeing depth and nuance and insight that I hadn't even seen before that's doing all sorts of new things that I only now I'm like sort of feeling the edges and textures and contours of that'll be years before I realize what that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I call the double down, my friends. So um, obviously I'm excited for you to read the book. Um, my friend Pete Rollins, you know our beloved friend Pete Rollins, he, uh, he read the book and he said, this is your most personal book yet. And I was uh, really struck by that because not, it's not like a book full of stories about confessionals or, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it feels like the least personal, but he's like, no, no, this is your most personal because these things really did, they shaped you. 
and you're showing us how, what they are and how they shaped you. And it's, yeah, this is the most, your most personal, which totally took me by surprise. So I would say that to you, my friends, that whatever, whatever it is that you're up to, yeah, go into the heart of it. Go into the heart of it. Own it. Claim it. Take joy in it. Because that's what we have. I'm simply telling you what I've seen and what I've experienced, what I've tasted, uh, what I've known. And that's where the life is. So, my friends, uh, when you find yourself hesitating, uh, when you find yourself like, yeah, I mean, that, that did happen, but I, you sort of, when you find somebody asking you where you're from and you're sort of going to say it, but you're going to, you're going to like sort of take a cut at the place that you're from, you're going to like demean it, stop and say, what's the double down here? And by the way, if I come to your town and you say something negative about your town when you meet me, don't do that. Don't do that. Be from where you're from, right? Be, be from there. Okay, say it with pride. And if you don't want to be from there, then have the guts to move. But be where you're from. And if, and if you need to move, then move and then love that place. But love where you're at. Life is too short. Um, I've literally been to places where the first five people I met were like, oh, you, uh, you probably wonder why you came here. What? How could you ever have joy? How could you ever have the fullness of life if you're cutting down what you're doing, where you're from, your setting, um, then get a new one. Or double down on the one you got. Yeah, yeah, that's how it works. That's how it works, my friends. That is how it works. So hopefully I'm gonna see you in the next uh, few weeks here or in July on the Bible Belt Tour and um, coming your way and then places that I'm not coming in this uh, first couple months, who knows? We'll be there sometime in the future. Grace and peace, my friends.